Hi, this is And the Oscar Doesn't Go To. I'm Sam Meltzer, and on this podcast, myself and a guest will be discussing the films that received Best Picture nominations, yet not only failed to win that award, but didn't take home any trophies on Oscar night. Today, I will be joined by returning guest Zita Short. Zita, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to have you on, as always. Oh, thank you so much for having me back. And we were just talking before we started recording and it is ridiculous that we haven't recorded together for seven months so I'm very excited to do this return of the queen (laughs) and the king I'm the Barbara Kovic of course of course uh today we will be discussing Paul Newman's 1968 drama Rachel Rachel which received four Oscar nominations What interests you in discussing this film? Well, I was sort of surprised by this one the first time I saw it. I had thought, oh, it's a Paul Newman, Joanne Woodward vanity project. It only got Oscar nominations because he was a movie star. And then I actually watched the film. (laughs) And it's really impressive. It's surprisingly politically radical for the time and I think it really holds up in terms of its exploration of feminist ideals. Joanne Woodward is marvellous in the leading role and I think it incorporates a couple of aspects of French New Wave filmmaking and styling and aesthetics without seeming to be overly pretentious and without losing the sense that it's still an American independent film that is deeply rooted in a certain time and place. Yeah, I think we can both agree that this period of Hollywood movies, I'm not sure if it's your like absolute favorite. I think it's probably my favorite period of time for movies. It's definitely a period of Hollywood um, and filmmaking that we're both really interested in consider it one of the most fascinating periods of film history. Um, because what you see is independent styles of filmmaking becoming more in mainstream. Um, and that sort of sugary, sentimental, old Hollywood feeling that people liked, that people went to the movies to enjoy themselves for, it, it, it's dying off. It, people were sort of becoming sick of that. And the fact that something like Rachel Rachel, yes, it is directed by Paul Newman. Yes, Joanne Woodward is in the movie. Despite that, I think it's impressive and a big step forward that a film like this receives a nomination for Best Picture. Um, And we'll get into this later, but I do think it's kind of funny that the reason why, a lot of the reason why this gets in is because Paul Newman's name is attached to it, but he was like the thing about the movie that didn't get nominated. So it is a little funny. Yes. Yes. And that was the eventual boycott oh yes which changed the best actress race supposedly Mm -hmm. uh but yeah no I really am fascinated in this period of filmmaking time I think it has such great movies um and this is a really interesting one um unless you're an Oscar completist you're not going to know what it is even if you're a big fan of Paul Newman you might not know what it is it's very hidden it feels very indie it is very indie Um, And it's just a fascinating little movie um, that I'm not going to call it the little movie that could because it's not like when this came out, people thought it could never happen. 
Um, but it is it is an impressive feat. And I think it's a very fascinating film to look back at, uh, especially considering how few people watch it today and remember it. And even back then, it wasn't like it was the biggest hit in the world. So this has always <laughs> no. been some kind of uh, indie hidden movie that's a little gem. Mm. Yes, I, I do think it's disappointing that people don't talk about this more and especially comparing Newman's directorial career to that of Robert Redford, one of his close friends and sort of one of the actors that he's most often compared to. I think this movie should be as popular and well-known as Ordinary People is. And I understand the fact that it is smaller scale than that movie is and a lot more inaccessible in some ways in terms of its themes. But I do think it just works so well as this emotionally resonant melodrama. And I think especially in this day and age where we complain about the fact that not enough movies for grown-ups get made and all of our biggest movie stars basically star in movies for children, it's really nice to have a reminder that Paul Newman used to make movies for people in the 30s and 40s that were about serious themes and weren't afraid to tackle controversial issues. And it just made me so depressed that we don't really have anyone on his level today. And I just can't imagine the Chris Evanses of the world <laughs> if they got the opportunity to direct a film making something this good. And that's why this period of Hollywood is so special. Um, that's why watching a movie like this is so intimate and interesting. Uh, because as you said, we just don't get them anymore. And not many other time periods in film history had project like projects like this. Um, so it's a really just fascinating story. And as you said, I mean, the themes of the film, which we'll get into, I'm just going to say this. I mean, this isn't going to be the happiest discussion. I mean, we can, Zita, Zita and I know how to have fun, but mm. there are serious <laughs> themes that happen that this film discusses that we're probably going to get into. So just um, as maybe a little trigger warning, just before we dive into the movie, this movie has very um, intense topics that it talks about. Um but yeah, I, th I think it's a really cool movie and I think it's really uh, nice that it receives a Best Picture nomination, even if it doesn't win anything in the end. Yes, it is. And I guess we could include a trigger warning or something if you're uncomfortable with discussions of things like abortion or potential sexual assault. Mm. And things like PTSD and yes. um, trauma, which this movie yeah. talks about a lot. Um, Definitely. But yeah, this movie is about, Joanne Woodward plays Rachel Cameron. She is a second grade, I believe, school teacher mm -hmm. um, who still lives with her mother. Just from the opening few minutes of the movie, you can tell that this movie is going to deal with her inner uh, persona a lot. Um, as she wakes up, she always is just throughout the movie is calling herself things like a coward always bringing herself down and you you know you hear Joanne Woodward say these things all these thoughts that she's having 
And like on her way to school, she just has these hallucinations, these whole visions of her either like fainting or just getting into terrible um, uh, sort of situations. And a lot of the film sort of brings her back to moments of her childhood that are clearly traumatic. Um, so I, I think it's not never really stated what, what's going on with her. I mean, I think that's part of the ambiguity of it. Uh, but it's clear that she has some sort of condition that reminds her of her trauma a lot. It's probably PTSD or something similar to that. Um, but she's a school teacher, a second grade school teacher. It's clear that she has experience with the job. She's still living with her mother. Um, but it's sort of her, the establishing minutes of the film are sort of showing her job, showing her environment. She's sort of asked out by a man in the school uh, parking lot and she's kind of reluctant. She says she has to you know, be with her mom that night for her, either her card or knitting night. I'm I, I, not too sure on the specifics of that, but it's clear that she's still attached to her mother and that she's very used to this profession in that she's she has a very routine lifestyle um so her condition while obviously gets in the way is never really um affect it, it never really affects her in in a way that she's sort of changing her life around but essentially yes she plays Rachel Cameron and she we also see that she is friends with Estelle Parsons whose character's name is um Kala she is a, her neighbor and her um co-worker she is also a teacher at the school um but yeah it's, it's sort of just the, the end of the school year we see a glimpse of her with her students a glimpse of people trying to engage with her in the public and how she's sort of reluctant to that and still stick with her family and her mother and even though she's in her 30s um because she clearly has something going on and there's um difficult for her to sort of maneuver herself outside of her comfort zone you you just get a glimpse of her daily life I'd say that's the the establishing act of the film uh so what are your thoughts about this setup I really appreciated the fact that as you point out so much is left ambiguous and I feel like that really helps the interpretation of the film's themes because I do worry that with a more mainstream version of this film, say a, a Weinstein version of this film, they would have decided, oh, we're going to make it about this specific condition that she suffers from. And we are going to have scenes in which other characters specifically say, you have schizophrenia. That is why you are uncomfortable in sexual situations. And I think not having that here adds a sense of sort of mood and atmosphere to a lot of scenes where you wonder, does she just have social anxiety or is it a more serious trauma? But I also think it prevents it from just being another message picture. And while the movie does want to address a lot of themes to do with things like abortion and sexual assault and the women's liberation movement, it definitely feels more like a character study. And so I think it's able to ground its discussion of all of those themes in a narrative that really effectively traces the evolution of this woman. And we see all of the ways in which small town life 
keeps her down and prevents her from forming real connections with others. And there's a part of me that loves the fact that it's such a downer of a film where I definitely think the more mainstream version of this movie suggests that, oh, she joins a knitting group and regains her self-confidence and suddenly she's dating the handsomest guy in town. And I think this movie really suggests that, no, small town life is hell. You feel trapped. And if you don't get along with your family members, it's sort of a death sentence because you are stuck being close to them for the rest of your life and you can't move to another city and only speak to them at Christmas. You have to live with your mother and see her every single day. Mm. Yeah, for sure. And I think that there's also like the fear of, um, let's say the movie, I, I know I said like, we can assume she has something like PTSD or she has trauma or, or something like that. Let's just say the movie had addressed that specifically. Let's just say the movie had characters that told her the condition she had. I feel mm. like this movie would be slapped with the label of the schizophrenia movie or the PTSD, the, the woman with PTSD movie. And it, it, from the few fans it has, from the few viewers it has, it doesn't receive that. Um, and as you mentioned, like we're thankful that the film is so grounded and rooted in the reality of suburbia. Um, as I was saying earlier, this movement in Hollywood and this new style of filmmaking after the 1950s films really started to critique things like suburban life and religion and sexual orientation and what would happen is it's because in the 50s and the 40s and probably the 30s and 20s too you know the American lifestyle was seen as you know you're supposed to marry someone and have two kids and a house and a fence and live in this perfect like utopian world where everything functions the same and now it's like people are moved past that people don't want that sugary coated that fakeness people want realism and Rachel Rachel exhibits that environment that is moving past that period of time and the fact that it takes place in suburbia it exemplifies that because you know you see this small town fairly normal, and you're seeing it from the eyes of someone who's moving forward through time, who understands that this way of living, the culture at which society is present in is not going to last and does not work for everybody, and that people need to speak up about it. And the a big theme of the film is that she has such trouble speaking up against that, that the themes of this real world conflict with her personal views and her ability to maneuver this world um and that's why it's such a great character study instead of just you know slapping on the label of oh she hates the suburban town she's miserable it must be because she has schizophrenia or it must be because she has trauma or because she has ptsd that by giving her a label of a disorder it's sort of addressing the excuse for her issues with her hometown and, and an excuse for why she doesn't really want to be there. And I, and you know, the term ambiguous comes up a lot when describing the movie because, because of those themes being handled in a way that's so subtle and so moving, the film holds up a lot better, as you said. I mean, it's, it's much more refreshing to watch this, especially in the context 
of the Oscars and and what what they normally nominated for best picture. Um, because I mean, yes, you describe it as a downer. I think the ending of the film is hopeful um, in a lot of ways. So there there is positivity to it, which which I think makes it more real. I, I don't think life is always a complete downer in that sense. I think there's always something guiding you to the to the step above. Um, but it is very real in its portrayal, and it doesn't necessarily hold back from the trauma and the direct pain that people um, of this nature are receiving constantly. And I think it beautifully handles its subject matter. No, maybe my, my point was more that it doesn't suggest that there is an easy solution right, to any right. of our problems. And I think one of the real joys of the film is that our problems aren't obvious in the sense that as an outsider, you could say, well, why doesn't she just get a boyfriend? She's a fairly attractive woman. She's of age. She has a job. It's not as though she's really struggling. She could just go out with somebody. And I think the film really finds a way to show you, no, her anxiety prevents her from doing that. And even if she did want to go out with somebody, maybe there aren't that many guys in town that she's attracted to. And then at the same time, I also think the use of supporting characters is really effective where even her best friend, we sense, is going through her own journey where she possibly has repressed a sexual attraction to Rachel. And you get this fairly heartbreaking scene where the two of them kiss outside after attending this religious convention of sorts. And you can just sense that for her friend, this is such a hopeful, euphoric moment and nothing really comes of it. And you could argue, oh, that's in a traditional sense, bad screenwriting because every scene should lead into a further plot development. But I think it works really effectively in displaying the fact that all of the people in this town on some level feel disaffected and lonely mm. and struggle to connect with one another. And her friend is processing all of this trauma and grief at the same time as she is. Right, right. And I think that, um, as you mentioned, like people could criticize the screenwriting for not fully developing with these storylines. And the reason why the film doesn't necessarily go through with all of those is because her life wasn't, her life didn't go through with all of those. Um, I'm not going to necessarily call them plot holes um, because I want to refer to them as something that's more respectful because this, this movie is so guided through her mindset mm-hmm. and her eyes. You're really stepping into her shoes. Um, and those scenes in which you get these frantic, flashbacks of her childhood um which we can get into throughout the episode are really not clear there is a vagueness to it which I think adds to the story and as you say with the Miramax thing that keeps going through my mind because it's like god what I'm so thankful that this wasn't like remade and by Miramax or something but (laughs) yeah but like like had this been like we would know exactly what happened in her childhood those those flashbacks would be full scenes yes. um, but instead we just get brief cuts 
we get these frantic edits. And I think that makes it more effective because you want more, but you also realize this is how she feels about it. Um, she isn't living in that time period, but she's also constantly thinking about it in fragments. And that's why she's damaged in a lot of ways. Um, so, and, and, and that story with her, um, with her friend too, just sort of relates to all of it too. It's like, maybe that story doesn't necessarily clear up. Maybe we don't get a proper ending of it. Maybe we don't get full details. We don't fully understand it, but that's the point because Rachel doesn't fully understand it either. And we're guided through her life so much that we have to um, restrain this connection to her um, exactly how she feels it rather than sort of getting a perspective from every other character. Because even though we do get this whole storyline and character arc from Estelle Parsons, we're never in her shoes. We're never in her perspective. We're in Rachel's perspective of her. Um, of, of Estelle Parsons so it, I think I think that the fragmented storytelling really works and it proves that this style of filmmaking that Paul Newman is exhibiting is actually quite experimental um, and it's not something you expect from a directorial debut to be experimental um, mm -hmm. usually directorial debuts are more assured um, and feed a lot uh, feed a lot off of the script but he decides to take turns that are much more driven um, of a filmmaker who's either made two or three movies rather than just one. Um, and I know it's cliche to say, well, it just like looks like he has so much more experience. It, it's not even necessarily that. It's just that the way that he tells the story just doesn't feel like a first time filmmaker, if that makes sense. Yes. And I know one of the things that the film was criticized for at the time of its release was this idea that it was pretentious and borrowing a lot of these new wave conventions without really managing to do something original with them or successfully integrate them into a more American context. And I think with more distance, I actually think that it works better than people gave it credit for and I sort of understand the response of some critics at the time where I know you had a lot of films kind of just using the aesthetics in a really surface level way without trying to do anything deeper and I think with this film it doesn't come across as though the flashbacks for example are just this form of stylistic set dressing. I don't think he's just trying to obscure the fact that he has nothing to say with a bunch of fancy effects. I think the movie does have a really strong point of view on its subject matter and as you said he does come across as a very assured filmmaker for someone making his first foray into directing and unlike some other actors turned directors it doesn't just feel like he is attempting to evoke memories of the work of some of his most famous collaborators where I know a lot of people pointed out that Channing Tatum who recently made his directorial debut does seem to be trying to make Steven Soderbergh movies and I definitely don't think with this one that you end up thinking, ooh, this feels like a Stuart Rosenberg picture. Mm. He definitely has a distinct voice, but it's not like 
Quentin Tarantino or Pedro Almodovar, no. <laughs> who you like, you watch the movie and it's like, oh, that director definitely made that movie. Um, mm. But yeah, I, I think he does a very excellent job with that. Uh, that was an excellent description in terms of like what certain direct people who, who start out actors from directors try to do. I don't really know how to add on to it aside from just like discussing the flashbacks themselves because I sort of have difficulty kind of understanding what happening what happened I mean you have a lot of these shots of young Rachel walking and you hear chants that are probably from her and her friends like they, they feel like playground kid chants um and I remember there was also this part where like right outside her house there's like a group of kids in the woods that try to scare her um but I I couldn't truly piece together the flashback sequences for the beginning parts of the film a lot of it as well as just hallucin not hallucinations but sort of visions she has about something bad that could happen along with her as a kid but like what did you make of those uh, um i'm curious because i think i think there's a lot of uh intentional ambiguity with those parts of the film um and i think that seeing her as a kid adds a lot more to it especially since I don't believe that the younger version of Rachel has any lines, which I don't think so. Yeah, which which definitely adds like even more. Like we're we're with Rachel, obviously, but in this present time too. Um, so we're really just experiencing her life. So what what did you make of the the flashbacks? I think they served as another form of commentary on this idea that small town life is oppressive. And in living in one place her entire life, I think Rachel's emotional development has been stunted. And in, I assume, teaching at the school that she attended as a child, I feel like there's this sense that she's not quite able to move on and form her own identity outside of being a member of the Cameron family. And I think she's constantly reminded of who she was as a child. Everybody in town knows everything about her. And there's something sort of terrifying about that. But if she steps out of line, there will be immediate repercussions. And I think it's disturbing when you hear that uh, girlish chanting, obviously, but there's also this sense, I think, that she's tied to the school inextricably. And you do get the feeling during some of the opening scenes where the school year has ended and everyone has left the building, but she's still there. I think on some level she needs her job because that's the only time when she can feel close to people. And during the holidays, she is stuck alone with her mother whom she doesn't appear to be very emotionally close to and she misses out on the opportunity to have even a shallow bond with the children and her colleagues mm. that's a very good interpretation um, especially with accordance to that whole small town life you know a lot of movies critique suburbia and as I said, like this period of time started that. And now you have movies like 
in the bedroom and American Beauty and Little Children that are more obvious and, and are sort of saying like it's not suburbia isn't what it seems like dig deeper you'll you'll find more things and and I love those movies so much and I think they're really good and I think that you know I might even like them more than Rachel Rachel um, but what Rachel Rachel does differently and more interestingly is sort of have that approach without directly making that the point of the film um, it, it it does it in a more grounded uh, not realistic, but more subtle way. Um, because the the whole idea of critiquing suburbia is that you can't really escape it. You do one thing that nobody likes, everyone remembers you for that one thing. You're sort of trapped in this society that, as you said, everyone knows who you are and has always known who you are and knows everything about you. There's zero sense of privacy and that can make it damaging that can damage your future, that can damage your image. It certainly makes you more insecure, which is a big feeling that Rachel has. She's very anxious and insecure, not necessarily about something as common um, as, as something like her looks, which I think most people are insecure about when displaying these feelings, but it's more so how she finds that people will react to her. And she's trapped. She doesn't even really know how to feel a lot of the time and she doesn't even really know what people want of her and what people think of her a lot which sort of causes these either panic attacks or these frantic visions um and it's a really intimate and horrifying way of not explicitly saying Rachel is damaged by suburbia and is trapped in a world that Maybe not, maybe that she doesn't not necessarily belong in, but certainly hasn't found a rich and nuanced way to enjoy her life ever because she's just trapped in this cycle of trauma and of people remembering things she did and everyone knowing everything about her and only wishing for a different life and getting to experience something like privacy or love or a world without all these, uh, inefficient sort of conditions that she has to face. Um, and, it, and the way that the film handles that approach, I think is very respectful and also very bold. Yes, and I also found it funny that this film fits into the genre of movies about psychologically unstable young women who have troubled relationships with their mother where I was thinking this is sort of the American version of The Piano Teacher, where I know that movie is much darker, it feels more transgressive, it goes to some places that this movie doesn't go. But I do find it fascinating as a thematic exploration of what happens when you are an adult woman and you still have to live with your mother, which I think for a lot of adult women, even if they adore their mothers, is not an ideal situation where it's just, it's very difficult to deal with still having that power dynamic in place where you, when you are a 35-year-old woman who does not need your mother to make you breakfast and dinner and nag you about cleaning your room. And so you do feel real 
concern for her character throughout this film, but you also on some level understand the point of view of her mother, where she's living with her daughter, she has nothing else to do all day, and she does just spend her time obsessing over her daughter's life in a way that is unhealthy. Right. And hopefully what I'm about to say, you can tell me or not if it does, but hopefully I'm not going to sound sexist, but like, I feel like mother-daughter relationships feel very differently than son and father relationships. Just I would it, agree with that. I, did. I don't think that's sexist at all. It's just acknowledging a difference. You're not saying yeah, well, mothers are evil, wombs belong to Satan or something. I yeah. don't know. I feel like relationships between men as father and son have a lot less, I don't know about tension, but there's more of an upfront reasoning. I feel like fathers in those relationships are easier to declare what they have issues with in the relationship. And sort of there's more, there's less of emotional restraint. I feel like there's more upfront abilities um, whereas in a mother-daughter relationship, I feel like there's a little more to delve into, which is why <laughs> in, in a movie like this, it's more interesting because there's a lot of setback emotions. Um, and there's a lot of sort of, you know, Rachel is so faithful to her mother and her mother isn't exactly nice to her all the time and maybe not not always knows what's best for her. The relationship between the two is hard to grasp onto. It's It's hard to realize what's going on necessarily. There isn't much um to to understand really at its core aside from brief uh setbacks because i think i think the majority of the relationships that are focused on are her and estelle parsons and her and and the boyfriend nick i think those two relationships have much more of a presence in the film but as for her relationship with her mom i mean it's clear that i, I it's not abusive but it's it's sort of damaging in the way that the rest of suburbia is to her um, and I find it fascinating because of the lack of it in a way, because you, 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 you open with, with their relationship um, in that she's, she's kind of waking her up. She's, she's living in her home and you, you realize that this does have an influence on how she behaves and her mother's opinions and her mother's criticism and her mother's lifestyle does obviously shape her. But that's not something that I was really thinking about while I was watching the movie, but it is something that has more of a lasting effect on you after and sort of realizing the ways in which Rachel's mother shape her persona and her lifestyle activities. Yes, I think that's a really accurate pinpointing of the tensions that exist between them. Where again, her mother is not outright abusive I think it's just the sense that these are people who are too close even for family members and there should be a degree of separation there between an adult woman and the woman who has raised her since she was a child mm. and she is infantilizing Rachel in this way that she can't quite avoid where it's also this sense that because Rachel hasn't had the opportunity to move out and form an identity of her own, in her mother's eyes, she is still that little girl, 
in mm. many ways and so you can understand her concern and I do think that makes it more nuanced than some films about mother-daughter struggles where the theme is just ooh rebellious daughter hates her mother and I think here it's not so much that either of them despise one another it's more that they just hurt one another in ways that they cannot avoid in their day-to-day mm. life you bring up the point about her still being her 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 the the Rachel still being her her daughter and how they're a little too close and that's reflected in a lot of physical qualities about mm. Rachel one of them is that she works around children she's I I like to think of Rachel having a childlike presence mm. one of the reasons she still lives with her mother mm. and her mother is fairly overprotective another reason she works around second graders also if you if this is kind of weird to make this a point but if you look at Rachel's room the way it's decorated and the way it's colored kind of looks like that of a child like like the pink coloring and the decorations are are not very adult like I don't know if I'm suited to say that but they still feel like it's the same exact room that she grew up in and that it hasn't changed once so all of these physical qualities that aren't necessarily explored in the movie but are just shown as little details very much add on to the relationship between her and her mother because the reason why she doesn't necessarily act childish, but the reason why her presence has childlike aspects is because of the relationship she's in with her mother. And I found that to be a fascinating detail. Yes, and I also think her mother issues, you could say, are reflected in her first, we assume, sexual experience where I think she's quite clingy. She's very nervous for obvious reasons, but there's this sense that she can't quite let go or allow herself to be uninhibited. And I saw that as one of the consequences of her being in this relationship with her mother where she feels as though she's constantly being scrutinised and nothing she does is good enough. And I know it's a little weird to say, ooh, her feelings about her mother come into her experiences with sex. But I do think you get the sense that she almost treats the experience like a test and is Mm. unable to just let go and enjoy it. She's so concerned the whole time about whether he hates what she's doing, if she's doing something wrong, And she deeply desires that emotional connection in a way that he is obviously not ready to engage in for understandable reasons. Mm. And you bring up that sort of parental judgment that she's always afraid of. And I think that's why a lot of the people in the movie surrounding her act so differently. It's because either they don't live with their parents or they're used to a world without their parents guiding them. And she's kind of the only one who's not. Um, So that parental guidance is always in the back of her mind and might also just be a trigger for these visions and these flashbacks. Um, We, we, I mean, of course we never really know, but, and there are so many things that up to, you can make interpretations for all of it. 
Um, but that's what I'm assuming is another reason that just adds on to her struggle and her pain uh, because she always feels like she's under the influence of someone who's quote unquote bigger and better than her. Um, and that's another really sad thing about it um, is that, you know, if you're a 35 year old woman and you're still so affected by something like this and, you know, you don't really feel like you have much control over your life in that way, it's, it's depressing, but it's real. Um, and her being like an outlier in the situation, sort of being the only one in the town who we see feel this way, makes it even more grounded and more uh, sort of realistic and authentic. Uh, I, I really like the approach to this relationship. I think you can analyze a lot about it. And oh, I also wanted to note, we, you keep talking about the realism and the authenticity. And one of the things I wanted to note is that I think the movie does represent a jump forward in terms of the Hollywood approach to this style of domestic melodrama that wants to convince you of its sincerity and authenticity, where I think you get a lot of movies in the 50s that are meant to be grounded in social realism, and you get these Tennessee Williams adaptations where the idea is wow it's the lives of these ordinary people living in the suburbs just going about their lives and I think you watch them today and there's something frustrating about the fact that the directors seemingly decide that the only way to convey that this is real is just to have everyone dress in drab clothing and to have them live in one location. And so I think this movie uses a lot of experimental techniques that don't necessarily seem authentic to what day-to-day -day life feels like, but I still think they get at the heart of the matter. And I do mm. think you get this embrace of the idea that more technique and more stylistic flourishes don't necessarily take away from the message at the story center and simplicity a sort of form of showy almost brissonian asceticism isn't necessarily always the way to go when you want to tell a story about a sexually repressed woman or a troubled relationship between a school teacher and her overbearing mother Hmm, for sure. And I'm going to make kind of a bold statement. I don't know if this is a bold statement necessarily, but it feels kind of broad. I personally have never seen a film that came out before 19, before the 1960s in which characters talked the way I talk. I feel like the 1960s were the period of time where scripts of films and the way the characters interacted actually felt similar to interactions I've had or heard. Um, and that's obviously because of the movements and all that. Um, and that's not to say that these movies prior to the 1960s are bad. Of course not. And there are aspects of realism to it. And it's not that they're totally unbelievable. Um, but you bring up these melodramas and you bring up these 50s movies and something like Peyton Place comes to mind when it's dealing with mother-daughter relationships and unhealthy sexual uh, interactions. And I think that while that movie establishes its themes in a mature way and is attempting to sort of 
suspend the realism and show it in a true way, there's still that Hollywood sugar coating on it. There's still that feeling that this isn't really how I talk. I, I've never heard people talk like this. And there's still that feel to it that's of old Hollywood. Whereas Rachel, Rachel is completely devoid of that, which makes it much more of an authentic experience. And again, I love so many melodramas from the 50s and from the 40s. I think they're great. I think they're so entertaining. But there is something to it that Rachel, Rachel has that those don't. Um, and it is that sense of grounded subtlety. It is that sort of thing you realize, oh, I've heard someone talk like that. I can relate to that more so. Um, I'm not sure if you agree with what I'm saying, but I, I think there is certainly a, a sense of naturalistic approaches that you see in films from this time period that you don't for movies 10 years prior. No, I can definitely see what you're saying. And I think one of the big frustrations of those 50s melodramas is that they make a big show out of how realistic everything is supposed to be. And the adoption of method acting, I think, was disastrous in the case of some actors who just were not suited to it, where you get a performance like the one that Bert Lancaster gives in The Rose Tattoo, which is possibly the strangest thing I've ever seen. Jared Leto could never. <laughs> He's just so bizarre. He's off his rocker. And you think, nobody acts this way. This is an alien's idea of what a sexy, young Italian labourer lusting after a single mother acts like. And it's just bizarre to watch. And I don't necessarily think that that's bad. In all cases, I love the artificiality of some 50s movies and I wouldn't trade in the stylistic excesses for something more believable. I think the bigger problem is with the films where their only calling card is the idea that this is full of bracing raw emotion and it's going to shock you because of how honest it is mm. and then you watch picnic and you think hmm i don't remember my teen years being like this so i do think that it's great that they finally settled into this style of speech that feels less affected than it used to in the sort of film where you don't want the, this sort of over-the-top, grandiose speechifying, where I still think there's definitely a place for that, but it has to be in the right type of film. Exactly. It's just very hit or miss in that sense, which can make it a difficult thing. But, but just to bring up something that would not take place in that time period that you that you mentioned earlier, but I want to get into now, is the question of sexuality and the relationship between Joanne and Estelle Parsons. So I'll, I'll just briefly say the story. Uh, I said that they're neighbors, they work at the same school. Estelle Parsons' character wants to sort of introduce Rachel to the real world more. She wants to do more things with her outside of their homes and school. So she attends a religious, it, it looks kind of like a cult, to be honest, some religious gathering 
um, where they all sing songs and have these prayers. And afterwards, it just brings up a lot in them. And so what happens is Rachel thinks, Rachel's just kind of standing there. They're kind of standing outside. Rachel's really gathering her thoughts, sort of lost, interested in what just happened. Kala thinks that this is a rediscovering of her sexuality. They, I'm not going to say share a kiss, but there is a sudden kiss between the two. And then Rachel runs off and doesn't really talk to Kala for that much longer. This scene is particularly interesting and shocking and really made me realize, okay, this is, this is very unique uh, that we're getting an exploration of people who aren't straight in a seemingly uh, typical and quote unquote perfect suburban society. So what are you what do you what are your thoughts on this relationship and this exploration? I thought it was a really sensitive treatment of the position that Carla finds herself in, where I think one of the big criticisms of the trope of the tragic member of the LGBTQIA community is this idea that it almost encourages straight people to fetishize the suffering of this minority group and to go, oh, isn't that sad? I pity that person instead of empathizing with them or wanting to change societal prejudices or get rid of prejudices so that those people no longer have to face that suffering. And I think one of the unique things that this film does is that you do get that scene where she thinks that it's a breakthrough for her in terms of her relationship with Rachel and her feelings are returned and they're going to initiate a relationship of a romantic or sexual nature and that doesn't end up happening and I do think you get a sense of that devastation but I don't think that Newman as a director lingers on it or leers at it or asks us to sort of celebrate over her sadness and misery and so I do think it offers her this level of dignity which you don't find in the treatment of other gay characters from this period absolutely i mean we're talking about this movie during pride month this is certainly one of the most one of the first lgbt themed not necessarily for the entire movie but includes explorations of lgbt characters to receive a best picture nomination i remember in our episode about the emigrants when we were going through the Oscar nominees, we brought up Sounder. And that's also a movie that is going to be talked about on this podcast. And you said that the Oscars do this a lot where they take a movie with people who either aren't white or aren't straight and decorate it with all of these nominations. But in the end of the day, don't give it any wins. And, and it's their way of saying, look, we can be progressive. We can nominate a movie with minorities. But in the end of the day, we don't really care. And we're still going to reward the either white straight movies. Um, and I think Rachel, Rachel is what you were referring to about movies where not all of the characters were straight people. And I think that, you know, just thinking about Paul Newman, he was speculated to be bisexual. And I know that Joanne Woodward is also somebody who is 
always been supportive of the gay community as Paul has as well. They are clearly ahead of their time in that sense. Um, and I think it's really important to realize that there were people who explored queer themes prior to the 2000s and the 1990s and, and those decades, because once you see moments like this in an older time period, it, it gives you a feeling of hope and it, and it adds depth and another layer. Um, and it's super fascinating. And there, as you said, the relationship isn't lingered on too long. Um, it's not a, pri I mean, it's a big focus of the movie, but it isn't, there isn't too much time spent on this part of it. Um, but you never really look down on Kala for this. The film never really has you question the fact that she's a lesbian. And I think that's beautiful for a movie from 1968 to do. I really, I really like Newman's approach to that because every movie from the 1950s that features characters who are homosexuals, the film has you question that and the film looks down on that. And it's often, I'm sure this is part of the code. You, the characters either have to die in the end or end up in prison. I mean, just seven years earlier, the children's hour comes out and Shirley MacLaine's character in that is revealed to be a lesbian and she has to commit suicide in order for the film to get made. And I think it's extraordinary that Kala isn't a character that has to do something like that. And I think it's like groundbreaking. So I have to congratulate and thank Paul Newman for making such an impressive feat of a movie, uh, a quality of a movie for 1968. And I think it's beautiful. I really do. And I think it's, such an important thing to realize, which, and is a reason why this movie should be more remembered. Think of it as a boundary breaker for the best picture category mm. and explicit homosexual themes that aren't always looked down upon. And I think it's important that we realize this has been around longer than we think. Yes, and you can definitely see a, a worse version of this film in which a direct link is drawn between Rachel's anxiety and uh, possible issues with her mental health and Carla's status as a member of the LGBTQ community. And I think you, you could get a really problematic reading of the film where they say, look, gay people are mentally ill. And I think it is really impressive that they say, no, this is not something that she has ever doubted. She knows that she is a lesbian and she knows that she has feelings for Rachel. And while she is rebuffed, this is not something that is going to drive her to harm herself. And it's something that she's absolutely certain of. And being gay is not a, a choice in any way or an illness. It is an intrinsic part of your being. Mm, absolutely. Um... And, and I also think that the movie is makes it clear that even though Rachel herself is not a lesbian or is not bisexual, um, it's clear that she's not against those themes and that we don't and that the movie doesn't explore. Oh, look, here's a gay character. Here's her friend. And the reason why they fall out is because Rachel is against members of the LGBT community and believes that being gay is a sin. Um, and I really appreciated that. I, I think it's just such a beautiful little arc of a moment. Um, and also just 
thinking about Estelle Parsons' career, she was in a lot of independent films in this time period. She was also in a film called Watermelon Man that I really like that deals with racism in a really interesting way that was written by a, a Black filmmaker. Um, so she clearly had like an eye for how to be progressive in a subtle way during that time period. Um, and this was just one of the first examples of that because she's playing a character who's a lesbian who isn't looked down upon for being a lesbian. And I think it's phenomenal. Definitely. And I do wish that people would talk more about the presentation of this character where I understand it's not as shocking or sort of controversial as something like The Boys in the Band, which would come a few years later. But I do think it really proves that you don't need to make a film where you have uh, a street main character and supporting characters with different sexual orientations where their sexual orientation defines them or it just feels like it's a form of tokenism where gay people can only support their street friends. I do think Carla feels like this fully rounded character she very much has an important place in the narrative. And I think to the people who argue, oh, well, those 80s movies that are full of homophobia, that was just ordinary. And before that, you didn't have any films that sensitively depicted what the experience of being a gay person was like. Screw you, that's absolutely not true. And people could have and should have done better in the decades following the release of this film. Yeah, and I think that there are even more movies that deal with fully rounded three-dimensional homosexual characters that we're not aware yeah. of. Um, and I'm just glad that the Oscars decided to put a spotlight on something like this because mm. otherwise I probably wouldn't have known what it was. Um, yes, well, maybe, yes. maybe because if you look at Paul Newman and his directorial mm. stuff, but probably not. I, but I think even for... Paul fans who definitely appreciate his work as an actor and see him as a master of his craft. I do think for a lot of them, the appeal of watching a Paul Newman movie is related to his physical presence <laughs> and the potential of seeing him shirtless on screen. And so well, think, can you blame <laughs> can you blame them for that? No, I'm not, I'm not shaming the Paul fans, but I think when they read, oh, he's not in this one, even though they probably love Joanne too. I think if you're a real Paul Newman fan, you are also team Joanne. But still, I think the lack of sex appeal on display in this one might turn some people off. Maybe, but... It's still a very interesting study. And also, like, if you're if you're not, if you don't want to watch this movie because it deals with sensitive topics and it has harsh themes and it has such a realism to it, like I understand that. Um, it can be difficult to watch. And I I I don't really know how how else to sort of bring this up in the episode, but I want to mention the score of the film because that sort of comes up when she's having her mm -hmm. visions and when she's having her flashbacks. You also hear sounds of her childhood, like songs that they sing at the playground and stuff like that the score of this movie absolutely fucking terrified me and w when a movie score does that 
without being, <laughs> I know it sounds stupid, but when a movie score does that without being painfully obvious, I think it's very impressive. It has this flute-like tone that, it, and, it, and it repeats itself a couple times. It's just this very eerie and creepy melody. Um, and not in like a horror movie creepy, just kind of in a isolated indie creepy and it makes the independent filmmaking, it makes the style of it, it makes the time period just so much more of a presence. Um, and I really just, I was kind of haunted by it. Like, I felt like I was being watched whenever I heard it. There was just some feeling about it that that I can't really describe. But it, it, it's a sensation that's odd and interesting. I'm, I don't know if you felt the same way. Probably didn't because you're, you think, you think it's funny. But uh I think that the score is definitely plays a key part in adding a layer to the the character and the the feelings that she possesses. Uh, a lot. Oh of no, the time. I definitely uh, concurred with your opinions on the score. I was just laughing because I feel like the two of us sitting here going, "Oh, it was so scary! It made me terrified and disconcerted." It sounds so funny when we're just describing scenes of a woman looking depressed and having childhood flashbacks for her. It's not as though she's being menaced by some man with a giant knife. <laughs> and yeah, it really does get at that feeling of desperation and loneliness that she encounters. And that can be and just as scary. Absolutely. I think it's hints at a lot of the underlying emotions that she feels but obviously Johan Woodward is definitely getting that across through her performance but I do think that things like the score help to make up for the fact that the screenplay is quite spare I would argue there's quite limited dialogue and I definitely don't think you have the sense of oh god this scene is moving far too slowly or you never feel as though it's just an intellectual exercise where Newman is mm. trying to explain this woman's psychological state. I think that the score keeps it from being just another, this is a horrible way to put it, but one of those art films where it kind of feels overly conceptual, where you think, but well, I might as well have not seen the film because the director explaining what they intended to do is more interesting than the film that they actually made. Whereas mm. I think here it's a real emotional experience that washes over you. It's also just very interpretive and, and mm -hmm. how you make of it. And I think that, you know, with the, the, the as you said, the little or the smaller presence of dialogue, makes me think like as you said this is much more of an acting and directing achievement than it is a writing one um and even though it sounds weird to say that considering it's a character study and learning about the character can learn lean within the writing but i think all these qualities that paul newman brings within the style and the editing and the frantic flashbacks and all of that and, and joanne woodward's capabilities and her her nuance are the reason why it has that eerie feel and why the character study is so rich and complex. Um, because there, it's not even necessarily her facial expressions that are doing this uh, because of the, the movement of the film. It, it's just a lot of the body language and a lot of the implications that you realize are, are faced with the character that make the study of her very uh, representative 
of loneliness and of desperation and just give an insight into someone who might seem ordinary or everyday because of the place that they're stuck in, but is anything but and deserves to have a sort of focus on them and have have you understand while also there being a, a feeling of left ambiguity to it, uh, which makes the character study so rich and interesting. Yes, and without belaboring the points that I have already made, I do think we should talk about Joanne's performance. At yes. Point. But obviously, we've already raved about what she does here, but I do think this is a really extraordinary turn from her, where she's already well-known for giving these very naturalistic, multifaceted performances that happen to be fairly subtle. And yet I feel like she just sort of kicks it into another gear in this one. And she plays this really mousy, lonely, shy woman without overplaying any of those qualities. And she does just have the quality of a person with low self-esteem. And I can't quite explain how she does it in a way that isn't overly obvious. But everything about her body language, her facial expressions, the way she speaks, really communicates the fact that this is a woman who doesn't even seem to hate herself, just assumes that everyone that she comes into contact with is disappointed by her. Mm. And what I'm about to say might seem like, oh, a woman is only good because of a man. But I think a lot of the reason why her performance is has that level of sophistication and subtlety is because of the direction um, and Paul Newman's handling on it. Because as we said, the writing is a little limited. Um, so she's only to work with emotions and body language. And she does it so interestingly. Um, this is a very uh, unique performance. It's not broad, but it's not oddly specific in a way that goes into overacting or goes into showiness. I don't like, I, I think that this movie is really not Oscar bait, um, which is weird to say, but it, it's really not. I mean, it, it's, it's a summer movie that's indie. Yes, it has big names, but it's clearly a passion project. And I think all of that sort of makes her performance feel more authentic. Um, it's very hard to describe it, though, because of the way that the film is structured. It never really gives you such a clear idea of how you're supposed to feel about the character. You definitely do sympathize with her. Um, but Joanne Woodward takes that sort of ambiguous approach and makes it very drawing and captivating. And I think that her performance is her best. I'm just going to say that. I think it's the best work she's ever done. I think she's a phenomenal actress. I've yet to say the see the effect of Gamma Rays, which I've also heard is her best, um, which came a few years later, also directed by Paul Newman. Uh, but from her four Oscar nominations, I think this is her best work. And I think this is just a very interesting, unique, and captivating approach to a multifaceted, uh, fascinating character. And I think that every turn that the character takes is, is all worth it because of her 
steps and her maneuver. And I think that she controls yet also allows insight for the viewer and sort of um, leaves an ambiguity of the film. I think I think she's a real purpose of why the movie works. Obviously the movie is called Rachel, Rachel. Um, so that's, that's not too interesting of a point to make. Uh, but I, I think it's a very excellent performance. I think it's definitely one of the best nominees in this category from this time period. She's really fantastic. And it's definitely the type of performance that like I understand knowing your taste is very much up your alley. Um, so re-watching this after getting to know your taste a little bit better over time makes sense as to why this is one of your favorite performances because it's very uh, your style of acting. And I think it really works, especially given the film's tone. So I'm a fan. Yes, and I think it does hold up over time where yes. I, I think some of the acting techniques that became really hip and popular in the late 60s, a lot of them were fantastic, but you do look at some highly acclaimed performances from that period and think, hmm, what were they thinking? Where I know even Morgan which is a film that I know we differ on in terms of our levels of appreciation for it. The David Warner performance in that is a real acquired taste. Whereas I think the Joanne Woodward performance is, it, it has a broader appeal, you could say. Mm, definitely. Just in independent movies from a certain time period, it's really just a question of whether they're going to hold up or not because they could either be so of their time or so ahead of their time. I think there's really an in-between with that. And Rachel Rachel is ahead of its time. It definitely holds up as an acting style because she doesn't go too broad ever. But also, as I said, she doesn't go too broad and she doesn't go too specific. Mm. Yes. Do you, what, how do you feel about Estelle Parsons' performance? So this is one of those odd cases where I know that you now love her performance in Bonnie and Clyde. Okay, I don't <laughs> love it. I don't love it. I don't. I think she's better than I gave her credit for. I think she does what the character needs to. I think it's more so I don't like the character and the writing of the character because I think she does it perfectly fine. But yeah, sorry, continue. <laughs> yes, yes. But no, I was just thinking from what little I have seen of her she does seem to have one mode that she goes into where she does tend to be this brassy, loud-mouthed gadabout. Mm. And I think that it just depends what context she is used in because you're meant to find her to be charming and wildly irrepressible in Bonnie and Clyde. And that is meant to be really endearing. And I'm largely just irritated by her performance in that film. Whereas I think in Rachel Rachel, all of those qualities aren't meant to be automatically ingratiating. And I do think there are times when you're meant to think, oh, she's a little annoying. And mm. that really works. And I think, sorry, it sounds like I'm doing that thing where you take credit away from a woman 
and say, oh yes, the male director was responsible for the performance working. I think it's more that Newman does seem to know how to take advantage of her strengths in a way that Arthur Penn didn't necessarily. And I think maybe it's the editing, maybe it's the fact that she's used in smaller doses here, but it really worked for me. I think she registers the pain and sadness that her character feels effectively, but also, as you pointed out, provides a great counterpoint to Rachel, who is this very dual pessimistic character. Whereas Kala, even though she also lives this very difficult, troubled existence, is optimistic. She is a ray of sunshine. She is happy and positive to a fault where she seemingly can't understand the gravity of a lot of the situations that she finds herself in. Mm. You describe that sort of yin and yang between the two characters and and, and Estelle Parsons' more broad, loud style and jo- jo- uh, Joanne Woodward's more subtle and uh, uh, ambiguous style. I, I think it makes you also question the strength of their performances also makes you question, what would the film look like had they been in a relationship together? That that would have been a very interesting dynamic to explore. And I'm not saying I wish the movie would change because of that, but the the strength and the style of the acting that they are providing does allow the audience to think about moments like that and and question things that the movie doesn't handle. and I, yeah, I think that just lies in their abilities. I think they're. I think that she's really good in the movie too. She's also such a standout, and I've I've grown more uh, to love her. I think she's a phenomenal actress. I really liked her in Watermelon Man. I think she steals the show, and I never sing for my father in her three scenes. And I want to just get more into her filmography. I know she was a lot of a uh, stage director. I know she directed Jessica Chastain in a play, I think in 2006 or 2007, um, but really? I don't know. I don't know much about her work aside from this late 60s to 70s period of time, but I am interested I, in learning about her. I will always respect her for choosing to shade Warren Beatty shortly after winning her Oscar, where <laughs> she said, Oh, I thought Bonnie and Clyde would win Best Picture, but I guess no one likes Warren Beatty, which... Oh, my God. Just go off, Queen. It's amazing. (laughs) More people should do that. Yes. And she's had a great career. Um, Mm. Very impressive person. Definitely very talented. And also, wasn't Bonnie and Clyde her debut movie? Ooh. Ooh, that would be interesting. I feel like you get a lot of cases like that with supporting actor performances back in the day, whereas now you have to be a Laura Dawn, Brad Pitt level superstar in order to contend. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, you're right. So apparently she was in this movie called Ladybug, Ladybug, very small role. <laughs> um, it is a Frank Perry movie. And it's about the Cuban Missile Crisis effects, I think. What? Ooh, okay. Yeah. Uh, well, it came out right after that. But th- I think Bonnie and Clyde was really her debut. And it's interesting. She wins an Oscar for that. And then her next movie is Rachel, Rachel. So she was on a roll. Um, 
and I don't I don't necessarily want to call this an afterglow nomination because uh, I do think it's really deserved and I don't think it's a coattail either just because the film got into best picture I think she genuinely puts in strong work that is worthy of receiving a nomination for an Oscar I think it's a very good performance I think the only other part of the movie that we haven't talked about is the part of the movie that I'm not interested in. Um, uh, and it's the relationship that Joanne Woodward for- forms with a man named Nick, who is also a teacher in New York. And he's sort of visiting, he, I think he was a, a classmate of hers. And it's sort of, you know, her experiencing sex. We sort of just talked about it earlier we don't need to delve into it too much because as I said this is the least interesting part of the movie I don't know if you'll agree with that (laughs) um but it's just sort of it's just sort of this 25 minute part of the movie where after her um events with her mother and with Kala and with her school happen it's and her experiences on her own and her trauma experiences you see her with a man named Nick and sort of her have sex with him and him kind of become like a boyfriend figure and yes, this is the part of the movie that inspires her decision to be on her own and give her confidence. And, you know, at the end of the movie is her, her telling her mom, I'm moving away. I, I got a job somewhere else and sort of her standing up to that. And I understand that this relationship is a big reason why she came with that decision. But I was kind of bored during it. I, I just wasn't <laughs> terribly interested in their relationship. I don't know how you felt about it, but that was just me. I kind of felt the same way in that I think he is deliberately presented as this underdeveloped character where he is there to serve that uh, purpose for her in pushing her to finally take control of her own life. But there's also this sense that because he is only really stopping over in town and only intends for their relationship to be a quick fling, he's not opening up to her and sorry he's not revealing that much of himself Mm. and so we don't really get to know him over the course of those scenes and so I think that's effective if they did try to sell it as some great love affair it would have been a distraction from the really fascinating parts of the film and yet like you I still felt as though it was the least fascinating aspect of the film. And I think it does say something, though, that the movie itself does seem more invested in highlighting these relationships that you wouldn't usually see in a drama about an older woman from this period where all of those Catherine Hepburn films from the 50s define her character in relation to the men that she's mm. with. yeah and yeah and as you said like maybe the point of the film is that it doesn't want to be defined by the man maybe it leaves the man to be sort of bland as you said and that he's only there to push her but if that's the case why do we spend such a long time with him mm. and that's where I think the self-awareness sort of loses its place it's not a terrible issue it's it's not that much time I think just cut off five ten minutes of it then it's perfectly fine didn't bother me too much but it's definitely the part of the movie that interested me the least and I really like the ending it's just that sort of bit of the final act of the movie that loses me just a tad um and maybe I'm just being annoying and nitpicky um but considering how much praise I have for the other parts of the film I think it is just 
a tad inconsistent and did leave me a little bored. No, I can understand what you're saying. I think there are so many other high points and the whole film is quite effective in sort of walking you over and putting a spell on you. And those scenes feel ever so slightly clunky in comparison to everything else. Hmm. Are you a fan of the ending? I think the ending works because as you said, it's sort of appealing that the film doesn't necessarily suggest that, oh, life is all pain and misery. I said it was a downer, but I think the important thing about the ending is that, yes, she's finally taking these steps to change her life. And she's dramatically overhauling everything. She's moving away. She's leaving everything behind. And yet, I also think there is that sense of uncertainty where the film doesn't suggest, oh yes, she's going to go to this new town and she's going to start socializing and having casual sex with handsome guys. I still think you get the sense that she could end up in a very similar place where she just spends her days teaching, does not go out, essentially lives as a hermit. And it's really appealing that the movie doesn't take the easy way out and have her end up with a boyfriend and a new job and a better salary at the end of the film. There's still this sense that the future is unknown and scary and uncertain. Absolutely. But there's also the hopefulness to it, which I Mm. appreciate a lot. And the real ending of the movie is shots of her on a beach with a child. And you don't really know if this is actually what's happening in the future or if this is her idea of what she wants to happen in the future. And I think that this resembles the hope that she possesses and that there's a feeling of because she moved on, she's able to lead an independent life and do what she likes to do. And I think that's beautiful. And I think there are so many ways to interpretate what her journey will look like. And I and I choose to, to recognize that, of course, what you said is maybe applicable. It's definitely a possibility, but also like I can choose to think about her living the life as, as what the, the final shots of the movie portray. Um, so there's, there's so much uh, to interpret here. And I think Newman's skills as a director allow the structure of the movie to really work in the message's favor in that it's not so clear cut. And while you want the best for her, you have to sort of take a step back and think what is going to happen to her? What's a realistic scenario? And maybe you don't always know the answer. Um, And it's not a totally sad ending. It's not a totally happy ending. It's just a very real ending. Um, And I think it concludes the story and the journey in a very nice, authentic way. Certainly, yes. I don't think it strikes a false note. Hmm, Definitely. Well, that was a... That was a big discussion about the film. (laughs) So we're going to head on to the 41st Academy Awards where Rachel Rachel received four nominations. Let's start in the category of Adapted Screenplay, where it's nominated alongside The Odd Couple, Oliver, Rosemary's Baby, and The Lion in Winter wins the Oscar for Adapted Screenplay. What are your thoughts here? Hmm. So, 
anyone who knows me <laughs> knows <laughs> that I passionately hate the lion in winter. I do not understand why it is acclaimed. To me, it is the most pretentious piece of piffle that masquerades as a highly entertaining romp that also has something of significance to say about these historical figures. And it's so pleased with itself, it thinks it's so funny and irreverent. And it's not. Every line of dialogue is overwritten, and yet all of the actors in the film deliver it like it's Shakespeare. And it gets on my nerves. I admire Catherine Hepburn greatly. She does everything that you could possibly do wrong with the already terrible dialogue. And the whole thing just leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Wow. Wow. And I'm ready for more of that, honestly, because hot takes are what I live for. Um, Everything that you just said, like that you don't like that the film is pleased with itself. You don't like that the actors are delivering the lines with Shakespeare. You don't like that what it thinks of itself. What the movie thinks of itself to you is why I think it's great. I think the movie succeeds in all of those areas. And I think that the dialogue is funny and rich and interesting. And the actors should deliver it like it's Shakespeare because it is on that level. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of love your hate for the movie. It's it's iconic in a lot of ways. Um, and we can get more into the movie, I think, in the best actress race, because I think Catherine Hepburn's performance is a big reason for your hatred of the film. Um, but do you want to talk about some of the other movies here? I mean, Oliver, we can talk, mention later, but Rosemary's Baby and The Odd Couple, we don't get to talk about in the other categories. They weren't in best picture. Um, so what do you what are your thoughts on like the category? I would say other than my hatred of the lion in winter, I do think this is generally an above average category uh, for the Oscars, where I think the lineup is quite strong this year. I like the fact that they have a lot of variety. And generally, I just think that it's interesting that they did choose to acknowledge a genre film. And then obviously Oliver is Oscar bait. But I think it's more cheerful than some of those other sort of lumbering 60s musicals about English people's suffering that they chose Mm -hmm. to reward during this time period. And I think it has this sense of fluffiness and self-awareness that something like My Fair Lady could have used. So while it's not a perfect adaptation of its source material and it keeps the incredibly dull protagonist, it's so much better than it could have been. I agree to to some degree. I think I think the first portion of the movie before the intermission is very fun. I think it has an intriguing story. I think the writing works. And as you said, like the main character isn't terribly interesting. So whenever it's really focused on him, it's kind of boring. But then after the the intermission happens and I don't know what happened, but it got so boring after that. And I think, (laughs) I think it's because you're spending so much more time with him and his life separate from, you know, the home of orphans. And and I I can't pronounce the name of Ron Moody's character. I do not want to 
get in publicly embarrassed for that. Um, but his house. And I think that this just separation of it is so dull. I, I still like the movie. I think it has great parts of it, but there is just a few things about it that hold it back. I think it's a good movie with some obvious flaws. And obviously it's the best picture winner. So I, I understand the nomination here. Um, I would say the movie here that I do have fun with that I wouldn't keep here is The Odd Couple. I think the dialogue in that movie is not realistic. I, I think it's it's Neil Simony in a way that's annoying and like kind of exhausting. And <sighs> Walter Matthau is in it. So Sucks, <laughs> Yes. So that's an automatic setback. That's the one I think that I would take out if I were if I were doing that. And then Rosemary's Baby, as you said, genre movie, as is the odd couple kind of as well. I mean, you you have such a wide variety of movies here. You have a comedy, a musical, an indie drama, a horror film and a historical epic. That is very that there's a variety right there. Um, So I think that that's very interesting. And Rosemary's Baby is a very interesting nominee. I think that's pretty deserved. But yeah, I mean, as for my vote, I'm agreeing with the winner 100%. I think The Lion in Winter is a top five adapted screenplay winner. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> is your vote for Rachel Rachel here? Yes. Yeah, makes sense. Anything else on this category? I just think if you were more of a gerontophile, you would understand the appeal of Mr. Mathal. <laughs> And you do? I don't. Again, I am also not enough of a gerontophile to get it. <laughs> if I were into liver spots and heavy wrinkling, then maybe. Hmm. All right. <laughs> Our next category is for best actress in a supporting role. Alongside Estelle Parsons, nominated are Lynn Carlin for Faces, Sandra Locke for The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, Kay Medford for Funny Girl, and your winner is Ruth Gordon for Rosemary's Baby. What are your thoughts here? So, it's one of those categories where I would argue that some of the nominees do feel a bit like fillers, but having said that, I do love the Parsons nomination, it doesn't just feel like a uh, good on you for giving another good performance nomination. It's not just an afterglow bit of recognition. And at the same time, I am no fan of Ruth Gordon's performance. I appreciate that film as a whole, but I am irritated by her persona. I hate the sound of her voice. It's like nails on a chalkboard to me and so I just don't get along with what she's doing in that film I know that you're meant to be disturbed by her character so you could argue that her lack of appeal towards me actually helps and enhances the performance but to me it felt like an overly calculated turn that didn't have enough spontaneity. 
I like it. I don't have particularly strong feelings about it, which I know sounds weird given the type of performance that it is. Um, I think she's good. I get the win. Obviously, a career win to some degree. Um, but like, if there's a performance that you're going to nominate for that movie, it's Mia Farrow. I mean, I think that's kind of an obvious thing to say. But come on now. I mean, she's really the standout. And yes, I understand. I, I think Ruth Gordon is like the the neighbor that sort of has this twisty arc to her. Um, and I don't think she's the worst here. I think she's very good. Um, I don't, I just don't see the reason why a lot of people think she's one of the best winners ever. I, I never really got that from it. Um, but it's solid. I, I think she's good in the movie. Uh, as for my vote, it is Estelle Parsons. Uh, I think she deserved to win the Oscar here. I am more of a Sandra Locke fan, but if you got me on the right day, you could convince me that Parsons deserved to win. Hmm. I don't really... Sandra, Sandra Locke's performance in that movie, I don't really know how to describe. Because on one hand, I think it's kind of annoying, but on one hand, I think it's like well done and like it has this proper sense of newcomer and authentic sort of not brevity, but uh, youngness to it that's very um, sort of fantastical. Uh, I think the filler nomination that you're referring to is Kay Medford. I think the reason why we say that is because her line, her songs were cut from the movie, and it's because yes, Barbara didn't want to, her to out, outshine mm. her, which, which I is think is the most Barbara Streisand. Of course. Thing. It's probably like Barbara Streisand, you know, like we'll get into this in the best actress category, of course, with Gregory <laughs> Peck and how she became the Academy member. I have a feeling that Barbara voted for everything for Funny Girl besides Kay Medford. Yes. <laughs> she <laughs> wanted to win without having to share an acting prize. Yeah. 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 And then Lynn Carlin, I think, is really good. Uh didn't love that movie. That movie kind of bothered me. I get that it's an indie movie. I get that it has the style that's unique and supposed to be kind of in your face in a lot of areas, but I don't know. I was kind of bored and left annoyed by it. I think it goes on for too long considering how one note its style and structure is, but I think Lynn Carlin is very good. I think she delivers a subtle nuanced performance that is worthy of recognition. Um, and is and I think I understand that nomination, but I'm voting for Estelle Parsons here. Yes, I think Lynn Carlin is often the one that people point to as the cool, sexy pick because she's in this real indie movie, you could say, where it's probably the most challenging of the bunch in terms of its formal experimentations. But... I am sort of worn down by that film pretty mm, early me on. Me too, me too. And it feels redundant after a while. And I'm sure you would encounter people who say, ooh, that's just an example of form matching function. And that's the point. And you're meant to feel bored and tired by 20 minutes into that rather long film. But there's a part of me that thinks, no, because a woman under the influence 
kept me engaged throughout, and that is about miserable, depressed, self-destructive people. I think it's just that faces is less focused and does feel messier in terms mm. of how it's put together. I also think that the characters are just far less interesting. Mm. Um, yes. And I think a woman under the influence has like a more, uh, and not necessarily an easier approach, but I think it's much more easy to relate to and connect with. And I think that this, the character of Mabel Longetti has far, 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 far more interesting qualities than anyone in Faces. And she just has such a captivating screen presence. Uh, so clearly, I think a woman under the influence is an improvement. And I appreciate what Faces tries to do. Just never really my thing. I think. Yes, I think we're on the same wavelength with yeah, this. Definitely. Before we get into picture and actress, I just want to sort of talk about the directing category because <laughs> of Paul Newman's snub. I think it's interesting, though, because you have Kubrick nominated for 2001 and uh, Ponte Corvo nominated for the Battle of Algiers this year, which are the best, the non-best picture nominees in the category. And you notice that like a lot of people nowadays are like, oh, you should predict that foreign film to get nominated for director or that less less artistically inclined films won't get into the directing category. And this has been going on since the 60s. I think the directing, the director's branch is incredibly snobby. And I think that they nominate films, they're more likely to nominate a foreign film or a more artistic movie than a movie that's in best picture that isn't as much. However, I'm surprised that Rachel, Rachel is the one that they take out and they still include Romeo and Juliet. That's what I find strange, especially since we talked, I, I mentioned this earlier, a big reason why Rachel Rachel does get nominated for Best Picture is because of Paul Newman's name behind it. But Paul Newman isn't nominated for Best Director. I would think that Romeo and Juliet is the one that gets taken out instead. Um, but I don't know. The director's branch is weird. And I think that it's also kind of interesting that like the two, mo by far the two most acclaimed films in this category are the non-Best Picture nominees. <laughs> Yes. And that does seem to be a theme throughout the 60s, where I think 1966 is probably the more notable example, where you just have this crap best picture lineup, and all of the more interesting films get nominated in the other major categories. Mm. And here, one of my frustrations is that people blame Rachel Rachel for 2001 A Space Odyssey not getting nominated. And yes, I guess it's technically true. Yes, Rachel Rachel was probably fifth in the category. At the same time, there is no world in which you can convince me that it is the weakest of the five best picture nominees. No, definitely and not. So don't go after this sensitive little indie movie when you have something like Funny Girl there, which has plenty of flaws. Okay, but like, let's not go there. Let's take oh, out oh, Romeo. Oh, oh. Let's take out Romeo and Juliet, and everyone's happy. Yeah, yes, Romeo and Juliet. It sucks. I it's was... trash. Actually, it's so fucking boring. I was mm. never like I've never wanted to fall asleep more in a movie. Could not care less. So fucking boring. Stupid. <laughs> Who gives a shit? Nominate two thousand one A Space Odyssey instead. Stop blaming Rachel. Rachel. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. You know what? I'm glad I never have to talk about Romeo and Juliet. 
<laughs> and I'm glad it didn't get any acting nominations. So, I me too. If Olivia Hussey had taken up a spot in that Best Actress, <laughs> what on earth? I mean, if she took out Catherine Hepburn, you'd be thrilled. But... I would be happy. Yes, but it was a strong year. Yes, and she did not. That teenager with no prior acting experience. <laughs> did not deserve to be up there with Joanne Woodward and Patricia Neal. You're right. And I'm also glad that Romeo and Juliet did not even get an adapted screenplay nomination. Oh, I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of iconic and hilarious. Thanks. Which, I mean, it also just adds on to how weird it is that Rachel Rachel didn't get director. I don't know. Yes. I don't know. Um, but yeah, we can move on to Best Picture now. The nominees alongside Rachel Rachel are Funny Girl, The Line in Winter, Romeo and Juliet, Oliver Wins. Rachel Rachel, I know is your choice here, but what are your thoughts on the lineup? Uh, hmm. <laughs> I feel like it could have been better. That's just my feeling where I look at the year as a whole and it was quite strong. And I just think you could have tried a bit harder, which is, sorry, that's the feeling you get every year with the Academy, but in particular this year, you think, did that one film really need that much recognition? Was Romeo it and Juliet. One? Yes, that, that's, the, that's the film that I'm yeah. talking about. Where because I know you hate the line in winter, but like, I feel like you can understand why people like that rather than Romeo and Juliet. Yes. Romeo and Juliet, if you are a super fan of the Franco Zeffirelli version of Romeo and Juliet, what are you doing with your life? Do you understand sexual tension? Do you know what it feels like? Because that movie, it wants to be sexy, Romeo and Juliet, and it's not. No. And it's boring. Yes. <laughs> Uh, I would not vote for Rachel Rachel here. I'd probably have it third in the category because I really love Funny Girl and The Lion in Winter. I'm sorry, Zita. Um, the Lion in Winter is my favorite. <laughs> I'm sure you could probably tell that. But Oliver, I, I'm fine with it winning. It makes sense. It's just like lame in terms of the fact that it hasn't held up at all and no one really cares about it. And that I think Funny Girl works better as a musical I think funny girl also has that issue of after the intermission it gets dull but I think that the my man ending and the presence of Barbara makes it much more worthwhile than seeing a nothing child and boring songs uh, so I think I think funny girl sort of handles that downfall third act better than Oliver I obviously think it has issues which is why the line of winter is what I'm voting for and then Rachel, Rachel, also really good third place. We've obviously talked about it a lot. Oliver fourth, and then by galaxies, Romeo and Juliet is the fifth one. It's the only one I don't think is good. So take out that for 2001, and then you have a great lineup. Um, or put the Battle of Algiers in, make it interesting. Or, or, yeah. even, or even like the subject was roses, or the heart is a lonely hunter, I think would be far better nominees than mm. Romeo and Juliet. I still think it is representative, though, of the wildness of the 60s, where you have this divide between an incredibly old-fashioned musical like Funny Girl 
and the Bastard of Elgiers, where they just seem to come from completely different planets. And it's so strange that they were technically competing with one another in certain categories where it just seems odd to me. It does. And also like Oliver Oliver and Funny Girl and like the line of winter is sort of old fashioned in that sense and Romeo and Juliet too. And then like Rachel Rachel is the outlier because it's so much more modern in its style um, that it doesn't even seem like it should be competing in the same category because of that. But I really do like its presence in the best picture category. Something I find interesting about the movie too is I know the Golden Globes are so strange. Uh, Joanne Woodward won the Golden Globe for Best Actress in a Drama, and it won Best Director at the Globes for Paul Newman, but it didn't get a picture nomination there. Something about that to me, even knowing how weird the Globes are, that just doesn't really make sense. Globes are gonna globe. I suppose the only thing I can think of is that they got nominated because of certain people are, are pushing for them and not many people had seen it at the time of nomination. So it doesn't get into best film and then more people watch it after that. And then it wins these. So that that's Maybe. the only thing I can think of, but even then it's like really strange. But yeah, she, Joanne Woodward won the actress in a drama. She also won the New York film critics circle award. So she, she did well precursor wise. Um, and unless there's anything you want to do, with the best picture category, we can move on to the one of the most famous acting yeah. races of Oscar history. No, let's get into it. Yeah, this is this weird. is a lot. This is a very uh, iconic moment. Mm. So, Joanne Woodward nominated for Rachel Rachel alongside Patricia Neal for The Subject Was Roses, Vanessa Redgrave for Isadora, and your winners. The winner, it's a tie. The winners are Catherine Hepburn in Lion in the Winter and Barbara Streisand. That was a terrible impression. Uh, (laughs) But I think it's kind of funny how she said Lion in the Winter. Yes. I (laughs) don't think she saw it. (laughs) She probably saw Funny Girl, though. No, I think Ingrid didn't give a fuck. She was one of those Academy members who saw three or four favorites before voting <laughs> honestly slay <laughs> uh but yeah this is a tie this is a crazy tie as i said joanne woodward won the new york film Critics circle award she won the golden globe for best actress in a drama there is rare footage of barbara streisand backstage saying i thought joanne woodward was gonna win clearly <laughs> she was some sort of front runner in the category um but do you want to get into some of the reasons as to why she didn't win with regards to her boycott. Yes. So I think it is one of those interesting cases where I almost feel like the boycott made her front runner status more of a story. Where So at the beginning of the season, seemingly, she was out ahead. She had massive critical acclaim behind her. It had been 11 years since her last win, And I think unlike some of the other contenders, she did have the advantage of being in a movie that basically rests on her shoulders. Whereas I feel like some of these other performers, Catherine Hepburn is in a movie where she has other A-list co-stars giving very big performances. And so I think Joanne was seen as this titanic force of nature 
in this very small movie. And then Paul doesn't get a Best Director nomination and she decides to boycott the Academy Awards in response to that, which sort of slays, but also a weird move. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like pity, but it's well, kind sort of petty. Of why? Yeah. What achieve? But I wonder, like, would she have won the Oscar if she didn't I don't do that? think so. That's I question that too. Mm-hmm. But I also question, would there have been a tie had that not happened? Maybe. Because I don't think so either. I think Barbara wins. Probably. I think I yes. think so. I, I think here's what happened. At the beginning of the season, as you said, she's the front runner. She wins the early awards. She wins the Golden Globe. Barbara, Barbara. Yes, Barbara is Jessica Chastain in the eyes of Tammy Faye. Barbara Streisand wins the SAG Award, if that existed back then. I mean, just based off of they they love musical performances. Barbara is a star. She's a newcomer. She sort of gained in the beginning, but towards the middle of the award season. And I feel like Catherine is Penelope Cruz, where let's say this year there was one more week of voting. I think Penelope Cruz would have won the Oscar. I really do. I think what happened here was you can watch Be Kind Be Kind Rewind's amazing video on it. But I think what if you look at just like if you think about precursors today and correspond them with back then, I think Joanne Woodward takes Globe for Drama and Critics Choice, the early wins of the season. I think Barbara wins the Globe for Comedy, she did, and SAG. And I think Catherine wins BAFTA, that sort of late boost. The tie is a very interesting scenario. And I think that I I heard somewhere that my grandma actually had a friend who was an Academy voter, said that she voted for Catherine Hepburn, but didn't send in her ballot. And yes. I think it I think it would have <laughs> I think it would have been very interesting had Catherine won because mm. she was not expected. Barbara no. became more of the front runner, I think, after Joanne Woodward boycotts. People catch on. I think people say Barbara Streisand is gonna win Best Actress, not mm. Joanne Woodward. I mean, not Catherine Hepburn. I think people found it strange that Peter O'Toole doesn't win and Catherine Hepburn does win. Because well, Peter O'Toole was the front runner the entire season. Um, yes. But until... then there were also discussions about the fact that Cliff Robertson was so thirsty for that Oscar and launched a chill that, But that was the campaign. end of the that was the end of the season campaign. That was really a yeah. last minute thing that he worked his way to because the fact it, the thing is O'Toole didn't campaign and that hurt him. Robertson campaigned his ass off and paid had studios pay so much money to have all these articles. O'Toole relied on the strength of his amazing performance. So naturally, the Oscars aren't going to go for that, which has resulted in a win that hasn't aged well. Not many people remember. Had Peter O'Toole won for The Line in Winter, he would be my number one best actor winner of all time. And it's very interesting to me that this is the outcome which proves that I think this Oscars is among the most unique and fascinating to look at Um, because you have a tie in best actress with someone who isn't expected to win a best actor win with someone who isn't really expected to win whose co-star wins wasn't supposed to happen. And you have 
sort of a best picture race and a lot of other, most of the other categories are very obvious. And what happens in the best actor category too is like, I think it happened before best actress. It was such an upset. Burt Lancaster announces Cliff Robertson. It's just abrupt. He's not even at the ceremony. Um, I don't even think Peter O'Toole was either. And then they go to Best Actress. And this huge upset of Cliff Robertson beating Peter O'Toole is just completely forgotten because of a tie. And it's so interesting to me that this tie, that in a way is so iconic and remembered and loved. People love these performances. They were iconic. This is among their career-defining work. It's so just it's such a presence that it takes over one of the biggest upsets in Academy history. I think it's fascinating. I, re- I really do. Mm, me too. And I think if she doesn't do the boycott, her whole front run narrative becomes less of a story. And it's more that, oh yes, there was a point in the season where we thought she would win, but then the big guns came along. Yeah. And Barbara Streisand wins. Yes. Um, Yanine, do you want to, before we announce, I kind of want to do like a rundown of the category just because I actually really love this lineup mm-hmm. um, because I think this is filled with career best work. I think these are great performances. Um, I sort of want to get our thoughts out because there aren't many podcasts where you get to talk about movies like Isadora and the subject was Roses. Um, and I think this is a good time to mention them. So what are your thoughts on these performances? Wherever you want to start, let's go for it. Well, I guess we could start with Patricia. Sure. Probably the least talked about of the nominees. Mm. Are you a fan? I sort of am. I think it's a fine performance. It's one of those nominations that like her other nomination, gets overshadowed by the dramas in her personal life. Right. Which were really sad and tragic. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Sorry. I'm not implying that (laughs) she herself sort of took advantage of that. As far as I know, it was only really the PR campaign behind her and she just wanted to act. And she wasn't a super publicity friendly person anyway but it is one of those things where the whole her coming back from a stroke was a big story at Mm -hmm. the time and I do think there are occasional scenes where you can just tell that her face isn't as mobile as it used to be I think I think it's a really sensitive grounded Mm -hmm. performance I think she's really wonderful in it I actually prefer this performance to HUD and as you mentioned um, you know the reason her life tragedies sort of are the reasons why she wins and then why she gets nominated because if you look like she didn't even get critics awards she didn't get a golden globe nomination but I don't think it was necessarily a surprise because mm-hmm. this is a this is like sentimental voting Jack Albertson yes. is the winner of supporting actor um, so there's clearly like love for the film and people did see the movie so I don't know if her nomination was a total surprise, but just basing off of everything, I think she was probably last place because a win here was never really likely. I don't think, I think in the, in the 1963 year, it's a weak year. So she's, she, mm-hmm. she, she has that sort of sentimental value that's working in favor of her. But in a year like this, where you're having two 
career best, three career best performances that are so gigantic and so, so much more remembered. Like, you're not going to win this. Um, but I really, really, really like this performance, actually. I think it's super underrated. I actually like the movie, too. I, I think it really works. I think her performance has this sensitive, gentle touch that is motherly and very much in favor of the film's style. It's not the most groundbreaking or memorable, but I think it very much works given the tone. And I really enjoy her in it. I, th I think she's she's very strong. Hmm. Yes, I think it's more that the nomination in this case was sort of the win. Right. I don't think there was ever any sense during the award season that Patricia Neal was a serious threat no. to Barbara Streisand's chances. No. And I feel like same with Vanessa Redgrave in a way, because even though she won Best Actress at the Cannes Film Festival, and that was a very acclaimed performance, it was a big biopic performance. Two she was there. the Kristen Stewart in Spencer of her Yes, life. yes. Ex look at us. And Nicole Kidman is... Um, okay, well, maybe not. It feels kind of mean to put, compare Joanne to Nicole. Is <laughs> is Patricia Neal, um, what's her name? Is Patricia Neal Olivia Coleman then? Yeah. Y yes, yes. Look at us. We're really drawing the comparisons here. Um, I think Vanessa Redgrave and Isadora, a couple things here. The movie was a big failure. Um, it's a long biopic. <laughs> Not, like I mean I I think it's pretty good I think she's very good in it but ultimately unmemorable um for me so I'm I'm not left with too much to care here I don't think there's anything wrong with the performance but for me I don't love it just because it's not as memorable as the other ones here um but she was also never really seen as a threat I think it was just between the other three but she was a still expected to get a nomination from what it seems. I also feel like this was the period when Vanessa Radcliffe was sort of the cool girl. Yes, in like Kristen Stewart. Yes. And I feel like that changes by the 70s. I feel like Mary Queen of Scots era, Vanessa uh. starts to become a boring establishment pick. Right. And I think it's more from this sort of late 60s period where she's making all of these very sexually charged, controversial films. And I almost think her chances would have been better if the biopic presented Isadora Duncan in a more sympathetic light. Because I do think in the movie, she comes across as a bitch in a way that <laughs> I enjoyed. But we know... There's the Academy wants biopics about entirely sympathetic figures. And maybe that's why Kristen Stewart didn't win. Maybe. But also, like, it's an overrated performance and Penelope Cruz and yes. Olivia <laughs> Coleman and Jessica Chastain are better. So, like, <laughs> sorry, film Twitter. <laughs> yes. um, yeah. It's subtle, Sam. Oh, yeah. So subtle, right? I could not <laughs> deal with that discourse. Yeah. Oh. I don't know. I think she's good. I think she's done better. It's a solid performance. Just ultimately, I don't have much to care about there. Um, those are like the two contenders that are forgotten about. So I just kind of wanted to shine a light on them. Uh, talk about their performances for a second, even though they are very famous actresses to a T. 
um, these aren't our performances that they're remembered for. And I think with especially Patricia Neal, maybe they should be more. Um, but it makes sense to me why they were never really in contention to win the Oscar. Just not enough. Yes. Yeah. And then we do want to get into the winners. Barbara. Um, Barbara yes. Streisand. Ooh. ooh, ooh, ooh. Uh, I know you don't love this. I know you have issues with Funny Girl, but do you think Barbara's bad in the movie? No, I don't think she's bad. It's my frustration with almost every Barbara Streisand movie where even when she's good, and she is really, really good a lot of the time, there's this feeling that her megalomania gets in the way and she decides that the entire film that surrounds her needs to serve as a vehicle for her performance. And so instead of getting a well-rounded, fascinating movie, you get a three-hour-long epic that eventually wears you out. I agree with your issues there about the film itself. Um, I think Funny Girl is a great movie. I love the songs. I love a lot of the scenes. I love the, the again, I think the part before the intermission is so good. And I love the ending. I love the ending of my man. And there is that 40 minute part that I find boring. That being said, Barbara Streisand is a fucking tour de force in this movie and gives one of the best performances ever. I think that this is magical. This is movie magic put to screen. This is the best debut performance of all time. I'm going to say that. I think that this is such a commanding, entertaining, fun, lively, energetic, layered interesting role you just I just couldn't take my eyes off her she is what brings me back to the movie it is there's a reason why hello gorgeous is so famous there's a reason why don't rain on my parade is still saying after 50 plus years it is because of her she makes this movie and so much more it is one of the best wins of best actress it is so iconic for all the right reasons and I have no reason not to love it I get being dragged down by it because of the film i get that but for me she's so powerful and such a strong presence that i forget about that and remember her because this is it's so her movie um and i think she has one of the best singing voices ever and when she starts singing those songs in the beginning when she's performing her comedic acts i just am absolutely entranced by this this is perfection Love every single thing about this performance. Love her. I think this is a perfect movie star to Oscar winning performance. It is so great on so many fronts. I wish I could be there with you. There are times where I do love the performance as much as you do. I just feel as though it is too much. At some point it becomes overwhelming. And I wish that we could see a version of Funny Girl that's a 90-minute musical comedy about a zany young Siegfeld Follies performer. I do not need all of the marital drama and right. Marsh Reef being a bar. <laughs> I just, I, what, I, what I'm seeing is that, like, your issue isn't as much Barbara as it is what the movie does with her. Yes. Yeah. And sorry, I think... Barbara herself is partially responsible for that because we know that she had 
creative control over the project she worked on. Fair, fair, but it's one of my favorites. I'm not going to put it down in any way. And then we get to Catherine Hepburn as Eleanor of Aquitaine in The Lion in Winter. I don't want to say much about this performance. I want you to steal the thunder. I'm not even going to talk much longer after this. Love her in the movie. I think she's great. Fits the style very well. I don't have much to add other than what most people think about it. You take it away. I am going to be silent. So it's so strange because this is the sort of performance that I should love, where I adore what Peter O'Toole does in Beckett. That is an extremely broad, campy performance in which he over-enunciates every word that he delivers and really just plays it up in this very theatrical manner. And for some reason, I love it in that film. Whereas here, Catherine Hepburn, so smug, so self-satisfied, so convinced that every little line she delivers is just the funniest, wittiest thing in the world. And it's not. She's oddly lacking in charm throughout the film. And that is something that she effortlessly possesses in a lot of her other films. I just feel like here she overestimates her own abilities and her own her own charm. She seems to think that she's Vanessa Redgrave or something. It's a very strange performance. I feel that she is fundamentally miscast in the role. And I know there are people who say, oh no, it's fine that she has her upper-class New England accent when she's meant to be playing this British royal. To me, it just never works. She never gels with her fellow cast members. The cast members that she is meant to have tension with, there just isn't that spark there. I never feel as though she wants to rip her husband's mistress's face off. And I need to feel that way in order for the the bitchy put-downs to have the impact that they should have. The whole thing feels emotionally neutered, and I never believe in her interpretation of the role. It feels in the same way that Maggie Smith filling in for Catherine Hepburn in Travels with My Aunt doesn't work. With The Lion in Winter, it feels like Catherine Hepburn got brought on at the last minute to replace a Joan Plowright or a Lynn Redgrave, some English grand dame, and she is just not up to the task. Wow. That was very satisfactory, honestly. I think you very well articulated your distaste with the performance um, in a very unique opinion, because all my thoughts on this performance are basically just what everyone else says. Um, So I wanted you to really steal the show here. And I know you also have some opinions on where she, I'd like you to share your opinions on like where she places on your best actress ranking and for best actress nominees as a whole, because they are quite substantial and quite the hot takes, if you will. So she's bottom five for me in terms of all-time nominees. She's better than Sandra Bullock in The Blind Side, but only just. So she's your second least favorite Best Actress nominee ever. Probably, yes. She's very much, she's down there. I I do not think of the performance 
fondly. Wow. There you have it, folks. There is one of the hottest takes you'll ever hear on a podcast. Um, Look, here's what I'll say. I think you're right in the sense that this is a self-satisfied performance, but I do think that it works. Um, I, I guess I'm a sucker for this kind of movie and performance and her acting style here to me is like campy in the way you describe O'Toole and Beckett. I think when she delivers a line, it's very fun and commanding and funny. I, I think she is funny. But again, what I'm saying here just probably feels repetitive of what other people are saying. So you should, I, I really respect that you shared your strong feelings on it because my opinions on this performance are boring. <laughs> I don't know. I don't really know what else to add. That's basically my, my way of saying that. Mm. Yes, we definitely differ in terms of our views on this lineup, I would say. Yeah. What's your ranking of it? So I would have Joanne first, of course, Vanessa second, then Patricia Neal third, Barbara Streisand fourth, and Catherine Hepburn fifth. Is the jump from fourth to fifth very large? Yes. (laughs) I would have Barbara Streisand first, Catherine Hepburn second, Joanne Woodward third, Patricia Neal fourth, Vanessa Redgrave fifth. I'd say my second and third are tied for for that second place. But Barbara takes the cake regardless. Mm. Oh, yes. In terms of ties, so this is just one question that I have for you. This is the most famous tie, I would argue, in Academy oh, Awards. Yeah. If you could award a tie in a different year, what would it be? I actually have an answer. In Best Actress? Yes, of course. The best category. My best actress tie would be in 2004 between uh, Amelda Staunton for Vera Drake and Catalina Sandino Moreno for Maria Full of Grace. Ooh, good choice. What's yours? Mine would be in 1993 between Stockard Channing and Emma Thompson. That is much more unconventional that you didn't include either Angela Bassett or Holly Hunter. Who look, Angela Bassett, also wonderful strong competition that year right yeah I don't know I I imagine that world but I I do think that this tie is like really interesting um I think more people agree with this as like the tie I think Joanne Woodward is probably aside from them the most liked choice and as I said the other two are forgotten um but yeah no no tie will ever in history will ever come close to this to be honest it's just so iconic it's I know, juicy. I, it yes. is, it is. And the Ingrid Bergman reaction is the cherry on top. Mm-hmm. No, the cherry on top is what Barbara wore to the Oscars. Oh, yes, showing off the booty. And her legs. I know. Yeah. If you've got it, flaunt it. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, uh, that was our Rachel Patrol episode. We, we got into a lot. This is a big year, a very... Uh, interesting movie anything else you'd like to add about the Oscars this year or the film itself no I think we've been through it thoroughly (laughs) (laughs) me too Uh, but thank you so much for coming back on this was great 
yes, I think it went really well. I had a lot of fun and as expected, you brought a lot of sophisticated analysis to the table. And you did too, as always. Thank you. Yeah. So where can people find you, Zena? Oh, yes. So I'm on Twitter at Zeta underscore short. I also host the 300 Passions podcast, which Sam has appeared on on multiple occasions. And that's available on most podcast platforms. And it's also on Twitter at 300 Passions. Yes, definitely check out Zeta's content. I am on Twitter at Sam Parasite, Letterbox Sam Meltzer. Please review and rate this podcast on whichever podcast service you use. And thank you all for listening.